I'm sure. glad he's cleared off, Dixie said. I'm glad. He might have made a speech. He might have jumped. Here we go. He says, I didn't like him. Oh, Leslie didn't like him. Humphrey liked him. He was bad for Humphrey. Mr. Druce liked him. And look what Mr. Druce has come to. Poor Miss Coverdale liked him. Trevor didn't like him. But I'm not worried now. I've got this bad cold, though. Welcome to the Curiously Specific Book Club. My digs in London were now 13 Baldwin Crescent, Camberwell, in a less fashionable part than my old Kensington haunts. The house was owned by Mrs Tiny Lazari, a wonderful Irish widow who had been married to an Italian cellist, so I understand the artist, darling. <laughs> I stayed with Tiny for years and years. She was then about 60. So who are we talking about? We are talking about Muriel Spark. Muriel Spark. The artist. Muriel the artist. Spark. I understand the artist. And where are we? We're, we're, well, we're in Camberwell, uh, on the edge of Peckham. We're at 13 Baldwin we're Crescent. outside 13 Baldwin Crescent, which at the moment is a rather grand Victorian house behind scaffolding. Another lovely gentleman in a high-vis waistcoat. men in high-vis waistcoat. Uh, he's walking out of it. Looking at us. And a, no shirt. Looking at us askance. Sexy. Not only is there no shirt, there's also no blue plaque. <laughs> right, she was here for ten years. I know. One of Britain's foremost novelists. Muriel no Spark, known mainly for the prime of Miss Jean Brodie, right? I am in my prime. <laughs> nice. How old are you, Miss Brodie? I am in my prime. <laughs> Didn't know you could do an Irish I, accent. I did. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not here to talk about that one. We're here to talk about another book, which is actually a bit better. We think. Do you think? I think so. It's quite it's, like it's, it's, it's the Jean one Brody. before Jean Brodie. So it's no, it's two it? before. Is it two before? two before? What's the one in the middle then? The Bachelors. Oh, okay. Oh, that's about. Uh, oh, yes. Okay, that's so about a medium, a fake medium. We haven't, actually, we haven't actually said what the name of the book is yet. We're talking about the Ballad of Peckham Rye. The Ballad of Peckham Rye, which is her fourth novel, The Comforters, Robinson, Memento Mori, and then The Ballad of Peckham Rye. Came out in 1960. Yep. Yeah. Published in 1960. So written. Written, Probably pretty quick because she, bang- she was banging them out. Written here, definitely written here. Definitely written in here. A garret up there. Up there. Written in that little room up there. It's quite, it's quite exciting to sit here and say where she wrote the book. One of the great things about this book, of which there are many, and why I love it so, is it mentions not one, <laughs> not two, <laughs> not three, but four pubs in the first page. Amazing. It is amazing. So it says here, his name was Humphrey Place. He was that fellow that walked out on his wedding a few weeks ago. He walked across to the White Horse and drank one bitter. Next, he visited the Morning Star and the Heat and Arms. He finished up at the Harbinger. Yeah. So, the Harbinger. This book has enormous opportunity for a pub crawl. It does, because as I'm going to, I'm going to, I wrote down all the pubs that were mentioned in the book, and I even managed to miss one. As you pointed out earlier on. Today. Yes. So have you got the list of them? I've got the list of, of them. all the pubs so mentioned. We've got to go to all the of them. The Rye Hotel. The White Horse. Yep. The Morning Star. Which twice. Is, yeah, which is now the Nags Head. Heat let me just arms, say. The Nags Head. That's the only reference to the program that's going to be on this. All podcast. right. All right. All Heat right. Arms. The Harbinger, which is mentioned more than any other pub. Yes. The Dragon at Dulwich. Yes. The Merry Widow. Yes. And as you pointed out, I missed one off. The Rosemary Branch. The Rosemary Branch. That's a lot of pubs, mate. That's a lot of pubs. That's a lot. Now... So this might get quite sloppy towards it. <laughs> well, it won't because of... Because it won't. Because... Now, let's think, talk about the reason it's called the Ballad of Peckham Rye. Yes. So, what we, what we know about ballads is that they're usually some retelling of, a, of, a, of an event, yeah. of a local event, but in song form or in sheet, broadsheet form. Yeah. And they usually make up a bit... 
and in the received telling as it goes the stories get handed down over the years and, yeah. the, re, and the re-singing and retelling of the battle and a bit the, the facts change a little bit elegiac a little bit yeah a little bit of that lost, but lost yeah but it's all it's folklore it's, folklore. it's about folklore it's about right folklore. so it's about the folklore of Peckham not the facts and I think so, we've got to watch out with this book because do you know what it's not curiously specific <laughs> is it and the other thing about the pub crawl is most of the pubs that we're going to aren't there anymore. Or never were. Or never were. I'm going to add a couple more. We're going to go and look at the Tyrrell Arms. Not there. Yeah. The Kings on the Rye. Well, these are not, not there, there. Or, nor in the book. The Edinburgh Castle. Not there. See. The Gold Diggers Arms. Not there. So these are a list of made-up pubs. I'm going to take Pendulum. you to a... I'm going to take you on a ghost, ghostly pub crawl. <laughs> are these ex-pubs or fictional pubs or both? They're all relevant to the story. Okay. They're all relevant to the story because they could be the Harbinger... Or they could be, they have stories attached to them that are relevant to the book. Oh, shit! <laughs> Curiously specific. There are two things that uh, inform the, this area, to my mind, yeah. right? One is beer. Yeah, pubs. yeah. Lots is of pubs. Lots of pubs. And in fact, uh, and, um, and that's largely to do with that it was big music hall country. Dan Leno, the big music hall yep. entrepreneur and artist, lived just literally 10 minutes walk away right and I just on the way here to meet you for breakfast yeah. uh, I went to Fred Carno's Fun Factory you did Fred Carno is uh, he, he was the f- first comedy troupe that Charlie Chaplin and Stan Laurel worked for in London when they were teenagers I think and his Fun Factory was his rehearsal studio it's just off Cold Harbour Lane it's literally only 5 minutes away from here 10 yeah. minutes away from here it's alleged to be the first place that a custard pie routine was ever practised <laughs> Which I, I don't know why, but I feel that might set the tone. Well, there's another bit. There's another bit to set the tone to, though, isn't there? Because it's not only known for beer and ah, waffles. Yes. Not without wanting to get too Peter Ackroyd on you, it's also known for asylums. Yes, that's true. So we're not the, far from the Maudsley, the for Maudsley's example. Just in her autobiography, Muriel Spot talks about taking a friend to the Maudsley. She well, also, she says that she also had a little bit of a episode herself in the mid fifties. Yeah, we might want to talk about that. Yep. Um, so there's there's that going on as well. There's a bit of oh yeah, I think I I read I'm gonna I'm gonna make up a fact here Go on. in the in the spirit of the of in the, the book, spirit of the book yeah. is that I read somewhere <laughs> probably on the internet <laughs> that this place was known because of the number of asylums here. Not just not just the Maudsley. There are a couple of others. There's also a lot of homeless centres here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this historian who said he he said oh, because of the architecture here of music halls, pubs, and asylums is that the story of Peckham is the story of madness and beer. Life changed our local tally into a bowling alley and things ain't what they used to be. There's Ted's with drain pipe trousers and dips in coffee houses and things ain't what they used so to be. So you brought me to Burgess Park, which I feel a bit uneasy in. This, was, this used to be a really dodgy part of town. It is still relatively That estate over there, what's that called? That the estate Albany, of, isn't it? The Albany estate. That. Isn't that the one that Tony Blair was going to shut down? Well, it is shut down half. Look, it's boarded up there. Yeah. That was. Yeah, I would not have walked through there in my youth. No. Getting funny looks as it is. But the interesting thing about this park is we're actually sitting on the old Grand Surrey Canal. That's why we're here, right? That's why we're here. Because the, the canal, canal is mentioned in the, the canal book. The canal is mentioned in the books. Dougal walked with Elaine to Camberwell Green. She said they could not take a taxi up to her door because her mother didn't like her coming home with men in taxis. They dropped off at the canal head at Brixton. The canal head at Brixton. The Grand Surrey Canal ran from the Surrey Docks, as the Surrey Keys it's now, 
all the way to basically Camberwell Road. Right. Through Bur- what is now Burgess Park. So Burgess Park was built over the old canal in the 70s and 80s. They yeah. knocked down all the warehouses and industrial bits and pieces. Yeah. Put a park on top of it, which is where we're sat now. And the canal head is on, is that, it, the ba- there was a basin at the end of what is now Burgess Park. So if you drive down Camberwell Road south, you'll come past Burgess Park on your left, you see a big sign at Burgess Park. Imagine that full of water and full of boats. That would have been, so it was the end of the canal. And are you suggesting that basically that Muriel Spark, from her house, if she wanted to walk to Peckham, she'd likely to walk Well, one way way to walk in would have been along the canal. Right. But you can walk down the canal back towards, as it were, back towards Surrey Keys if you wanted to, and turn right. There was a turning off, there was a branch off the canal that went right into the middle of Peckham. That's good. What's the book about, Tim? What's the book about? The book is about a somewhat odd... Scotsman Dougal Douglas or Douglas Dougal depending who he's talking to turning up in Peckham his, as an arts man uh, who uh, blags his way into a job at a factory two at, jobs a textiles factory initially yeah. one job both yeah. at two rival factories saying that he's going to sort of take the pulse of the workers yeah. and uh, solve their pro- their absenteeism problem yeah. by getting into hanging out with them be getting all sociological yeah. uh, and he persuades them that that requires him to be not at work all the time yeah out, out looking at out looking at them in the wild but essentially what this is about is that he's a he's a he may be the devil or a harbinger of the devil well they meet at the harbinger the yeah. pub, the harbinger, which is a, a clear he's a mate. troublemaker, isn't he? He's a troublemaker. And he's a troublemaker both for the working classes who he starts flirting with, yeah. a lot of the w- young women, and and the the management classes. He enchants them all and causes terrible trouble: a breakup of a marriage, fights on the rye, fairs, skiving off work, drinking too much, dancing in a mad way. He claims to have removed horns from his head. He's he gets got bumps feel, on his head. He gets people to feel his scalp, doesn't he? Saying, saying he's got two bumps on his head. A surgeon removed my horns. Yeah. And he's got a hunchback as well. Yeah. He's got a hunchback, uh, so that some of the ladies feel sorry for him. So, and I like it. There's some good bits in it. We should say the book starts with Humphrey, who's one of the main characters. He likes Going it. on his pub crawl, who, who, becomes, who gets befriended by Dougal. Yeah. And as a result, his, his relationship with his intended Dixie... Yeah, is somewhat uh, is compromised. Compromised. So he ends up. He ends up on his wedding day. Here they were kneeling at the altar. The vicar was reading from the prayer book. Dixie took a lacy. This is on page second page of the book. Dixie took a lacy handkerchief from her sleeve and gently patted her nose. Humphrey noticed the whiff of scent which came from the handkerchief. The vicar said to Humphrey, "Wilt thou have this woman to thy wedded wife?" "No," Humphrey said. "To be quite frank, I won't." And then the other thing about the myth-making, I will just say this as well, is that he goes quite into... He's into local history, so he's found an account of the fair up the road at Camberwell Green. Yeah. According to Colburn's Calendar of Amusements, 1840, Dougal said, he reached for his notebook, leaned on his elbow, heaved his high shoulder and read. He talks about uh, uh, the fair that used to go on there yeah. and the fact that there was a mermaid on display. According to Colburn's Calendar of Amusements, 1840. Yeah, Dougal gracefully cast his book aside, how I should like to meet a mermaid, he said. Right, so, terrific, Humphrey said. You make it up, he asked. No, I copied it out of an old book in the library. My research. Mendelssohn wrote his spring song in Ruskin Park. Ruskin lived on Denmark Hill. Mrs Fitzherbert lived in Camberwell Grove. Bodicea committed suicide on Peckham Rye, probably where the bowling green is now, I should imagine. But look here, how would you like to be engaged to marry a mermaid that writes poetry? 
Fascinating, Humphrey so, said. Uh, so Mendelssohn did, did live, did compose Spring Song in Ruskin Park. Ruskin did live on Denmark Hill. Mrs Fitzherbert was... Do you know who she was? Mrs. Fitzherbert. No, she's an actress. No, she was George the Fourth. You know, you remember ah. George the Fourth married illegally without his parent, okay. without his father's permission. Well, I didn't remember married, that. I didn't know married, that. Well, I, I, need, I looked it up. <laughs> he married Mrs. Fitzherbert, who allegedly lived on Camberwell Grove. Although I couldn't really stand that up. The thing about Bodicea committing suicide. Yeah, on, on the, that's got on to the be Rye. bullshit, hasn't it? Well, I thought she was from Essex. So. It's, it's, As if you couldn't tell. I, there's absolutely no evidence. Villa Ricky Bodicea. There's no Villa Ricky Bodicea. There's no, <laughs> there's no reference, there's no way of standing it up historically. She's doing whatsoever. very well. But I asked my wife, who used to run a school in Peckham, I yeah. said, do you know this story about uh, Bodicea being defeated by the Romans, committing suicide on, on the Rye? I said, oh yeah, no, that's true. I said, what do you mean that's true? Because well, everyone knows that. Rex, do you believe in evil? That's an idea. Do you believe in the power of darkness? That's a superstition. Now there you are wrong. The power of darkness is more than just a superstition. It is a living force. Hello, darling. (laughs) (laughs) So you just said this is awesome. It is. So we're walking down the Peckham branch of the, the Peckham Canal. branch. So we're now. This is this is the sneaky way into Peckham, the isn't sneaky it? Sneaky way into Peckham, which, which is down been, the old. Um, what would have been the branch off the main canal, right? The main walk, Surrey Canal. We'd have been walking through the canal, about to walk under the road, on a very quite grand-looking old Victorian bridge. Oh, yeah. It's a spectacular bridge, actually. Look at it. It's got the old towpath on it. Yes, that's the right. Yeah, you can feel that. That does look exactly like a canal towpath bridge. Yeah. Peckham Quiet Route. Peckham Quiet Route. It's called. That's very good. Take a picky of that. I'm take a picky of that. So we've got a sneaking into Peckham Rye down the down the back way. Down a canal that isn't there. It's better, be can- of, better be battered at Peckham Rye. Wow. So it's strangely now as we're going into it, I'm feeling like Peckham is a bit mythic. It's a bit mythic. It's a bit we've been we've been just from the outside, and then you're going to go under this bridge yeah, yeah. and come to the magical kingdom the of Peckham. <laughs> so we're going to come out on Peckham High Street near the near the library on stilts. So we're going to carry on with the uh, ah the weird mythical analogies. The library on oh, stilts. Look, there's a good there's a good old Victorian wall there as well. Look at that. Welcome to the curiously specific book club. We're in an estate. Yeah, I'll bring you here. Sco Sco Gardens. This is for your first imaginary pint. Okay. <laughs> Because this is where the Rosemary Branch pub was. Right. Uh, and it's in the shadow of Sco, so Sco Estates. Estate, which is the 1950s estate that would have been built yeah. while she was writing this book, yeah, more yeah, or less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, and this pub was, is ancient, it's 18th century. Right. And um, I think that she's picking up, uh, this book is a bit about her sensing the clash of the modern and the ancient the harbinger of what's coming uh, and and the idea that what was mythic about Peckham is what, what's happening now in Peckham will, will become mythic when it's crumped over by the new yeah yeah yeah, yeah. right and that's why the, and the clash of industry and yeah, arts yeah, yeah, yeah. and working class and middle class like it like it like All it right? yeah, yeah. okay so I think that's what this book's about really yeah. okay. in the end now, the Rosemary Branch is such a brilliant place. I wish... It, so it is actually mentioned in the book. Is it? Oh, yes, yes it is. It, it is. is. Yes. They go, they go, go, they go for a drink there. Yeah, they take yeah. the bus and go for a drink there. It was really famous. I didn't know this about it. It's been for centuries and was known as a kind of fantastic sort of playground. 
Located on the corner of what is now Southampton Row and Commercial Row. Yeah, that's where we are. Exactly where we are. Near where Peckham and Camberwell meet. Nothing remains of this former renowned place of hospitality, an establishment that has no suburban rival. Uh, this is from uh, Exploring Southwark yeah. website. It's brilliant. 1841 map shows the location with a bowling green, yeah. an archery ground, and a shooting ground. Wow. There is a record of one novelty event where a wager was made that a pony could trot 14 miles in an hour with a monkey as a jockey. The monkey was booted, spurred and otherwise attired after the fashion of the jockeys at Epsom or Newmarket and rode the pony in the usual style with saddle and bridle. Um, it's mentioned in All Year Round, the Dickens's, uh, there's an article in Dickens's magazine All Year Round, 1862, of an excursion to the Rosemary Branch to attend a cricket match held between a team of one-legged men playing against a team of one-armed men. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> So this is good, isn't it? Yeah. It's in the spirit of the book, yeah. of, uh, of a, you, Peckham's a place where you go and see funny things yeah, happen yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that may or may not be true. So we're now on Consort Road, Brayards Road corner, the industrial heartland of Peckham. You can really see, in fact, I can look over there and see the back of the bussy building, which is the big warehouse you can see from the railways, you're coming out of Peckham Rise Station. Yep. We we walked up a a, a one railway bridge there, and one down there. So there's a mention in the book of the factory being... He looks out the window at the railway bridge. But you get a real sense that this is... There's a, I mean, on the old maps, there's, there's factories dotted everywhere. There's textile factories and paper factories and yeah. pram factories. And it's loads, I mean... It's textile factories that they that he works at. It's a nylon at, textile factory. That, that Dougal works at. That Dougal works at And everybody works, everybody, everybody works at Everybody works at Everybody works at there. So we're, we're, we're closer to the Rye now than we've been. We've yeah, moved we're away close. from Rye Lane and Pickham High Street. We're, close, we're getting to more closer to the magic... Close to the, the magic. magical space, and we're getting close to the nun's head. What I also want to say to you is, you're now standing. If you turn around towards the old people's the home, the Greenhive Care Home, that used to be the Gold Diggers, the oh, Gold really? Diggers Arms, a oh, pub. How appropriate! An imaginary pub to sup your set, another imaginary pint. Now, the reason I bring you to this location is that when I started looking up all these imaginary pubs, yeah, this one. In the comment sections of the various blogs I looked at, there were people who remembered it. Yeah. And at least two of them swore blind yeah. that in their youth, yeah. in the pub, everybody knew that there was a tunnel that went down below the Gold Diggers pub yeah. and came out at the Nun's Head pub, down in Nun's Head. And right. that it was a fact, Lloyd. It was, an, it was a fact that the they all fact. knew. So this and it was where the nuns used to run away when they were being persecuted. They'd hide down in the tunnel. Well, she says that in the book, doesn't she? Yeah, she I know. So that the book. I know, I know. Okay. So we'll find the actual reading, because it's always good to have the actual so reading. there's only two people who But said it's that. based on, on... On fact. Well, on local... Saloon bar fact. Saloon bar fact, which I think actually is a yeah. lot of what this book is. Yeah, there's yeah, a lot yeah. of saloon bar storytelling. Well, as I said, my wife is convinced that Baudicier did commit suicide on, on the right, because everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. So you're standing 
on the point where the real tunnel is. And if you draw a straight line from the nun's head to the gold diggers to the police station, it's a straight line. That straight line is tunnel. I think what's interesting about that is the is how is the folk memory how it became established. And then people go, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's there. And how a woman who lived right on the other side in Camberwell. I wanted somebody. Somebody must have told her something like this. Did she go to the pubs on her own? Did she speak to people? Did they go? Oh, you know about the tunnel. Do you think she goes to a lot of pubs? No, I, I don't. Oh, you don't? No, I think she does. <laughs> oh, I don't get. And really? <gasps> yeah. Maybe when she was younger. Maybe when she was younger. Oh God. She holds literary parties in her garret flat what, with editors and poets. No. She's not Dylan Thomas, mate. <laughs> no, what's she meant to be? Curiously specific. Do you know, Dougal said, up at the police station, they are excavating an underground tunnel which starts in the station yard and runs all the way to Nunhead. Mm -hmm. You should ponder sometimes about underground tunnels. Did you know Bodicea was broken and defeated on the Rye? She was a great beefy soldier. I think you should take Mr Druce's advice and study my manner, Mr Weedon. I could give you lessons at ten and six an hour. Mr. Whedon rose to hit him, but since the walls of his office were made mostly of glass, he was prevented in the act by an overwhelming sense of being looked at from all sides. <laughs> so that says two things to me. One is, there's a tunnel, mate. Yeah. There's a tunnel. And two, that there's a lot of glass in that building, in that factory building. So we've been talking a little bit about so basically, Dougal has two jobs in the end, doesn't he? And, yes. And, he, and he's Dougal Douglas on one side and Douglas Dougal on the other, and he works for two different textiles well, he takes factories. The, he takes the first job was a nylon textile company called uh, Meadows, Mead and Gridley. Yeah. Manufacturers of nylon textiles, a small but growing concern. <laughs> and uh, when he takes the job, there he goes for an interview, and it says, Dougal turned sideways in his chair and gazed out of the window at the railway bridge. Ah. Now, there's quite a lot of railway bridges in Peckham. Yes, but they're a, not near the Rye. Well, the they, railway marches round from East Dulwich up the top and then, uh, and then off and away through, to Nunhead. It cuts through east-west, doesn't it? Yeah, but it's not that near it's the Rye. not near the Rye, no. The nearest one to the Rye is actually the one we're currently sitting near, which is over Gordon Road. So we're quite liking that, aren't we? We're quite liking that bridge, although it's not right in the middle of the industrial district, which is over more and more towards the Bussy building. And then the other, the other, thing, the other company he joins later on is Drover Willis's. Yep, Tetsuo Magistrate. Now... In this one, page 69, the factory was opening its gates as Dougal came down the steps from the office into the leafy lanes of Nun Row. Peckham is obviously next to Nunhead. Yep. The leafy lanes of Nun Row. There's no such road as Run Nun Row, but there are leafy lanes with nuns. There's Nun's Crescent and there's Nun's there's Nunhead Light. And there's a, there's a really big, and there's uh, a big factory just on that side of the ride yep. with its exit coming out onto that. Yeah onto that area so we quite like we but quite it's, it's a paper factory it's not a it's textile, not a textile manufacturer so nuns yes so now let, that's a real pub we can go to now having me but you do know the police station was on a convent it's built on a convent is that true true uh, but no, how, absolutely but, true but is that just somebody else told you that like no, I, no, no. like I looked up some people from a I've pub said that the gold diggers Peckham is a place so with a tunnel peckhamsociety.org.uk you believe them now do you I believe them hmm? Initially a small house in Walworth in 1811, but subsequently a larger house in Peckham was purchased, now the site of Peckham Police Station, ah. called Sion House, after their original house. Very good. Okay. Here they received new... In the interim, three or four of the old nuns and one of the newly professed had died, 
These were buried at the end of the very long garden. So you've got that. You've got your two old drunk drunkards in the uh, <laughs> no, they're kids, the, very impressionable kids, the gold diggers who've game. been told by some drunkard. There's a tunnel, there's a tunnel down there's here, kids. Don't go nuns. down there. Dead nuns. <laughs> dead, dead, dead nuns. Dead nuns. No, but there's also tradition says that the pub, the old nun's head, which is we're heading to now, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? It, uh, it's called that because of the beheading of a mother superior of a nunnery which once stood on the site of the hostelry. Right. She was executed in 1534 by Henry VIII, not directly, I wouldn't say, for refusing his order of expulsion from the church. After her execution, her head was placed on a pike staff and displayed in the grounds of the nunnery, the nun's head. Right. Okay. Do we believe that story? Alas, there is no evidence of a nunnery ever existing in Peckham, or indeed any proof of the sister of Percy's grisly demise. There we go. Nonetheless, Nonetheless. the ghost of a nun-like figure has been sighted many times around the pub, supposedly lamenting the loss of her head. How do you lament the loss of your head without your head? So at the end of the book, there is a bit of a finale in the tunnel. Where, there is. where Dougal has a fight with a Trevor fight Lomas, with Trevor Lomas, who's doing the electrics down in the tunnel. Yeah. He's doing the lights down yeah, in the yeah. tunnel, yeah, yeah. like it's a real place. <laughs> but it says here, it says he. So Dougal goes to the police station. And they let him in. The tunnel's open now, as you see. The steps are in. Official opening on Wednesday. Lights are being fixed now. Pity I won't be here. I should have liked to go along the tunnel. Go down if you like. It's only 600 yards. Brings you out at Gordon Road. Where we're sitting now. We're sitting in Gordon Road. It comes out here. In the park. 600 yards from the police station. One of our men is on guard at that point. He'll know you. Pity not to see it as you've taken so much interest. I'll come, Dougal said. Then off he goes and has a little fight down the tunnel. So you're basically at the exit. Where the the fight is. Where he fights Trevor At the tunnel. This is his last scene. He comes out. Has a fight with him. On the straight line. Gives him a left-hand blow to the jaw, picks up his bags, and comes out and goes for a drink in The Merry Widow. What a night! We've just been touring down, down dear old Brixton Way. Oh, Mother Brown, the pearly queen's hundred years today. Oh, what a celebration! Oh, it was proper la-di-da. Until they rolled the carpet up and shouted, now they ma, woo! Knees up, Mother Brown, knees up, Mother Brown. Come along, dearie, let it go. E-I-I-I-O, it's your blooming birthday. We were talking about her. Yeah, Muriel Spark. Yeah, and the fact that uh, a um, that she had suffered a mental yeah. breakdown in the fifties before writing these books, before becoming a novelist. Really, yeah. I think probably she came out of that and decided that's it. I'm going to be a from novelist. poetry to novel to novel, novel writing. Now her breakdown was about around um, being ill because she was taking a sort of eat, uh, food and eating depre- uh, repression. Yeah, she what said she was it? taking uh, diet, diet pills, basically. Yeah, but really serious ones, yeah, yeah. and they were making her hallucinate. Yeah, stuff. Yeah. But her hallucinations were that, she, that words were sort of moving around on the page of the things she was writing and news- uh, reading in newspapers and books to the point that she felt that somebody was sending her secret messages. She became a complete sort of paranoid. She thought T.S. Eliot was sending her secret messages... In, in the things she was I think reading. I think we've all thought that at some time. I know he's doing it still, <laughs> definitely, from beyond the grave. But now, I just want to say that the, her mental illness around disinformation and secret messages and stuff, during the war, yeah. she worked in black ops propaganda yeah. in a secret place to create um, false information for to send into Germany to get the public to feel worried about what was going on. Or yeah. It's a bit like it's sort of uh, Russian propaganda of just... 
sending out loads and loads of nonsense stuff so you don't know what's real and what isn't. Yeah. So that kind of stuff is what she was involved in doing in the war. Now, do you not think, A, that's the kind, that explains something why she would then start to mistrust things that she reads and that words move around and they've yeah. got secret messages. But do you not think also this book has a lot of stuff around misinformation misinformation and, and, and fake signals and, uh, yeah and, well, I want, I, and muddling I want, up the truth this guy is really Dougal Douglas or Douglas Dougal that's what he's good at he's okay, really well, good at I mi- want to talk about one of those word things which I don't think you've spotted which I think was, well, I spotted only a couple of days ago which I think is quite funny go on then and it's to do with the, the dance hall yes so the dance hall they go to Findlater's ballroom she calls it oh, Findlater's yeah. ballroom so I found a, uh, a ballroom called the Peckham Pavilion, which was a dance hall, in, which, which, was, which was open around this time where they had that kind of dancing in. But then I looked at the name again, Findlater's Ballroom. Find later. Ooh! I reckon she wrote that down in her notes and Ooh. said, I need to find the name of a ballroom later, and just wrote find later, and then thought, could be, the, could be called that. Oh, you're such a writer. <laughs> you're such a find, writer. Find later ballroom. Oh, I like it. I like it. I only spotted it. I only, I mean, I've read the book four times. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. That's very good. Find later. Find yeah. the ballroom later. Find never, I think, then, is what we'll have. And then and I wonder, she either got the proofs back and went, oh, shit. <laughs> she doesn't care. But then she thought, no, it's quite good. She doesn't It's care. quite good. What we, we understand is she doesn't yeah, care. Yeah, so she's got this made-up place with a made-up name, which is the, and the name itself is expressive of its made-upness. She yeah. just leaves it in. This is about, this is a sort of balladeer. Yeah going off somewhere else. Let me tell you a story about Peckham Rye. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's sort of true. In case beneath. there's somebody in the pub who's been there, she's got enough detail to make it sound. And then, and then this built this folk right, tale around right. it. It's like one of those two... Yeah, it's like, like two old lads at the back of the pub going, oh, let me tell you about Peckham. <laughs> and, um, but as we walk around it, it feels like that. It does. It feels like you well, could make up all kinds of funny Lots stories. of London does, doesn't it? But she, that's, she's good at it. She's actually she's really had a job doing it. Because the other thing, she's done it in 150 words. Uh, pages, 150 pages. I mean, it's so. All her books are quite short, right? So she does, tight. She does, none of her books are long, right? None of the early none ones. ones I've ever. I don't read. know the later ones. Are the well, she's longer. cracking on. She's getting these out one a year, isn't she? Well, she said she was writing two, two a, year a year at one point. Crazy, crazy stuff. Welcome to the curiously specific book club. Cheers. Cheers. Real pint. Real pint. Real pub. Oh. Well, a real pub on the. Uh, Is it a real pub? On the boundaries of myth. So we get to the front door, and what I said there's going to be a sign here that's going to tell you that... Well, we're at the old nun's head in, in Nunhead. Yeah. Uh, there's a big sign on the door talking about the, the, how the, the nun was captured and... Decapitated. But they've added to the story, Tim. They have. They've added to the story by saying that there was a way for the nun to escape down a tunnel to Meeting House Lane. Where the police station is. Where the police station is. It's on the wall, it so must she, be true. She's joined... So they've joined the story of the nun's head to the story of the tunnel... And they're both, they're both true. They're both true. We were, we were, you know, not we were not laughing about this, but we were being amused I by was. this. <laughs> when um, an, a gentleman outside with a, with a cigarette and goes, "Oh no, it's all true. It's all true." And we went, "Really?" He goes, "Oh yeah, no, it's all true. All the factories and you know that book, the Ballad of Peckham Rye. It's in there." He did say that, but he said that there are people, there are locals still alive who worked in those factories, and those all those names are real. <laughs> and he also said which, that the, the, which the, not. and that the tunnel had, was a thing that had been open and people had been down. Amazing. So he's just amazing. He believes that. Although you actually asked him that outright, said, "Do you know anyone who's been down the tunnel?" And he changed he changed the subject in that brilliant South London way. 
we started talking about something else. <laughs> so it was like... doesn't matter, though, does maybe, it? Maybe... Do you think they're all in on it? I said to him, look, I'm one of those people who needs to see things where I believe them, and he said, I'm not. I'm not. Life's more interesting like that, he said, isn't it? We asked him about Boadicea committing suicide on the Rye, and he went, no, she didn't commit suicide. She was defeated by the Romans on the Rye. It was our last battle. Nice. Technical, right. technical point. Okay, technical point. But then he said, um, we've only just got that story back. <laughs> he said, when we were a bit... We, we were a bit rubbish around here for a long time. Didn't That's another statement. Nice. We were a bit rubbish around here for a long time. So Telegraph Hill, we were a bit posher, claimed it, claimed it happened up there. But we've got it back now. With gentrification, we've they've got, got a, their story gen- back. Now we're all gentrified, we've got the story back. That's how stories work. That's how gentrification works. Excellent, excellent. So basically, basically, this book has now become... Part of the local myth. Part of the facts of Beckham. <laughs> the She's myth been, space. Yeah. And let us sharpen our swords, and let us show the Romans the real meaning of suffering. And from vengeance comes a passionate leader, desperate to break the chains of oppression. Follow me, or submit to the Roman yoke! Dougal starts flirting with Trevor Lomas's girlfriend, Beauty, who works in Celia Modes on Rye Lane. Also I love this. That. Yeah. Dougal said to Trevor, I'll see you up on the rye outside the tennis court. Uh, Humphrey drives off with Dixie and Elaine in the car up to the tennis court. And it says, Dougal arrived at the tennis court six minutes later. Um, the tennis courts are right at the top of Rye Common. You thought they were in the middle, didn't you? But they're not, but they're not. They're not, just they're down the, the end. Map, yeah. yeah. Anyway, it all kicks off in the, in the park, in the tennis courts. It was Dixie, said Humphrey to Dougal on the way home, that started the fight. She overtired and worked up. She said that tart of Trevor's was giving her looks. She went to the girl and said, who are you looking at? Anyway, so they're not with Dixie. It's Humphrey and Dougal. Right. Rain started to fall as they turned up past the old Quaker Cemetery. So uh. they walked back from here past the... And the old Quaker Cemetery is off Rye Lane, right up the top of Rye Lane. Up in his room, Dougal poured Algerian wine. Now, do you know about Algerian wine? I don't think I've ever drunk Algerian, Algerian wine. wine. Algerian wine was very big in the 50s. Very, right. very big. Some, something like two-thirds of all wine traded in the world was from Algeria, Tunisia and Morocco. At that time, Algeria was obviously part of... France. France, or owned by France. Yeah. Um, uh, and basically, most Algerian wine was mixed with French wine to make kind of table wine. Right. But, um, he's obviously got the real stuff. Um, but basically, after independence, the French pulled the plug on the uh, Algerian wine industry and said, we're not taking any more of your wine. Yeah. Bugger off. So Algeria had to sell all their wine to the Soviet Union under, under cost. When was that? That was in the 60s. Right. But in the 50s, it was a big deal, Algerian wine. Right. So Do you think know. it was a bit hip as well? I think it might have been a bit like what the jazz cats were drinking. Yeah, they were a bit Camus, were hip, a bit Albert Camus about Al- it. Hip to the Algerian. <laughs> Got the Algerian. But, Very good. Which leads on to the question of dating, Tim. Well, it, it's got the 50s all over it, hasn't it? There's young people fighting in the park, yeah. doing the calypso, yeah. uh, while the rosers turn up. While the rosers turn and up. And then they naff off to for yeah, some Algerian... Some Algerian wine, or to go to Costa's Cafe. But there is a—it's date- very rock and roll. There is a dating reference, isn't there? Because Dixie is yep. seventeen years old. Yes, and, and there's it- a reference to her mother being the first GI bride out of Peckham in 1942. Correct. It's on the boat in June 1942. It's a GI bride, so she was, she was quite early on in the 1742. So, yeah. So the question so is: Was she up the duff? Was she up the duff when she got on the boat? I'd say yes. So that would make it 1959. That could be right. Seems about right, isn't it? Well, that's when it's... That, she's obviously writing it around that time. Yeah. 
It's published in '60, isn't it? '61. Yeah. But you spotted a um, well a Midsummer's Day. Sorry, I'm so, <laughs> I, all I can do is apologise. On Midsummer Night, Trevor Lomas walked with a somnambulistic sway into Findlater's Findlater's Ballroom and looked round for beauty. But what we do know is that that's a Saturday, right? Because it says it's a Saturday. A western breeze blew over the rye, and it was Midsummer Night, a Saturday. Okay, there we go. Boom. Boom. So that's the 24th of June, is Midsummer Night. Then you check when 24th of June is on a Saturday during that time. Yeah. Isn't it, it isn't 1959. No. It's either 1950 yeah. or 1961. Right. So either, I suppose there's a chance that uh, Dixie, Dixie was conceived in 1944... Yes, well, so this is 1961. In, but that would suggest so she's writing the book in the near future. That would suggest that her mother didn't conceive between leaving Peckham in 1942 and 1944, which seems unlikely. Why has she done that then? Why has she done? Why has she said Midsummer Nights on a Saturday? Why would you do that? Because she doesn't care. She wants it. Well, I know why she's done it. No, it's she just wants information. To be the, she wants it to be Black exactly Ops. the same night in 1961. That Barney is riding his white horse in Stig of the Dump into the into the past. We know that because we're curiously specific. We're in the myth space again. <laughs> we know that. Okay. No, I, I obviously what she wants. She wants it to be a Saturday night because it wants to be down the music hall on Midsummer's it, night. It all kicking off, on and there being night. fights on the rye, and it being a Midsummer mythical, blah blah. She didn't think there was going to be some summer. toe rag. Three decades hence. Who gave a shit? Who, get, who looked it up <laughs> and went, oh, Muriel. So let's go with 1959. Okay. I think that's right. It feels right, isn't it? And it, it's quite nice in that sense of like it's the last throws of the 1950s. Yeah. And we're getting, and, the, and it's the throw forward to the 1960s and the and the efficiencies and the modern offices and uh, I did look up open and the liberation of women I did look up extent. open plan offices because I thought that might be a clue yeah you know the first open plan office where was it 1906 Frank Lloyd Wright oh really yeah oh wow so that wasn't much help I'm afraid no okay well a nice little bit of nice little aside yeah so the only the only thing that's real is the rye absolutely we're sitting in it right now and all the places, here. all the and places, it is here, and it, the tennis all, courts are there, and it's uh, all the places she describes in the rye are still here. The bowling yeah. greens here, yeah. Um, so it felt, it feels like she spent a lot of time on the rye while she was conceiving this book. Yeah, but everything around it is a bit woo, moves around a bit, a little bit woo. Where Dixie lives is a bit of a conundrum, I think. Yeah, it's not clear. So it's Rye Grove, Twelve Rye Grove. Yeah, which is a very no, specific address, and that doesn't no. exist. Yeah, but if you were going to give a family a specific address, you'd probably invent one because you wouldn't want people showing up at the real house going, does Dixie live here? I would have thought they'd be delighted to see us. Does Dixie live here? Hello, we're doing a podcast about curiously specific dates and locations and we wondered whether we could come and have a cup of tea with you about your house. Is Dixie in? When did you fall pregnant? If we may ask you, your mother... Got a handful of songs to sing you Can't stop my voice when it longs to sing you New songs and blues songs and songs Your final imaginary pub, okay. 
The Tyrrell Arms. Tyrrell Arms. When I saw it on the map, I thought, aha, I have found it. And it does actually accord, in terms of its look, more to what a harbinger we might imagine it to look like. But... Uh, now I'm, and I'm thinking, oh, it's in the perfect position. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's just next to yeah. your door. But I'm not convinced now. Well, if, about if this was all, if this was all this new. This is all new. This is built in the 60s. New. No question. Because yeah. what we need to do now is we need to make a decision, don't we, about what we think about the Harbinger. Yes. Where it was. And, or, or why, she, why she needed a. Why did she need a fourth or fifth imaginary pub when she's got loads of real ones and we should point out the harbinger is mentioned more than any of the other pubs oh yeah it's, the, it's definitely the it's place the pub where they where they hang out they come and go it's mentioned five or six times yeah 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 and the other pubs are like once or twice yeah so it's like a, it's a location very much so and obviously but in terms of the view this is quite a good view yeah because there's, there's a mention of um is it humphrey looks out the window of the pub and sees yeah. the dark shape of the We'll find that the bit. Lido. We'll find that bit. Yeah. Okay, cool. Let's all go down the pub Saturday night, boys, all down the rub-a-dub. Oi, me a Shinzi and knocking back the beer. Half past ten comes, we will still be here. This is the place to be. Saturday night, boys, meet all your cups of tea. And if Daisy treats us right, we'll be back tomorrow night. Oh, down a rubber dub. Dougal stopped to look into the darkness of the rye beyond the swing bars before he went into the harbinger. And then they're in the harbinger, and a bright, spiky chandelier and a row of glittering crystal lamps set against a mirror behind the bar. Spiky chandelier was designed to preserve, in theory, the pub's vintage fame in the old Camberwell Palace days. Which is bonkers because it's nowhere near the Camberwell Palace here. Ed Glynert, in his Literary London, says the harbinger must be what you, the, the Golden, Golden Lion, Lion, which we which is in front of, which the, is now a bank, which is another of, imaginary pub. But that's miles from here. The interior, she's describing the interior of a different pub. Yeah, of course she is. Of course she is. And that would have been near her house. The Golden, Golden Lion. Lion. Yeah, it would have been. It would have been. The fact that it's called the Harbinger, in a book about looming change. Yeah. The fact that that's not really a very good pub name. Have you ever heard of a pub called The Harbinger? No. Um, makes it feel like it's all very made up. It's also the pub she mentions more than any other pub. Yeah. In the book. It's a, it's a, it's a place, you know. It's a, it's a. Well, I had to look... Do you know what? I actually did look up what Harbinger means and where it's derivation. Oh, yeah. Do you know what it is? Well, I know what it means, but I don't know what it's derivation it's is. derivation is that The Harbinger is the, um, the king's messenger, the scout... Who, who comes in advance of the king to scout out a place for the king to stay? So he's a Satan's, yeah, harbinger. Yeah, he comes in advance to scout it out as a possible place to stay. It's good, huh? It is good. That so feel, she's a, that's she's a poet. That she, she's de- a poet. She knows very about words. That feels very deliberate. Of course it, it is. Of course it is. But then he leaves. He was away off to Africa with the intention of selling tape recorders to all the witch doctors. <laughs> no medicine man, Dougal said, these days can afford to be without a portable tape recorder. Without the aid of this modern device, which may be easily concealed in the undergrowth of the jungle. It's mad. The old tribal authority will rapidly become undermined by the mounting influence of modern scepticism. That's quite interesting. Uh, Much can be told of Dougal's subsequent life. 
He returned from Africa and became a novice in a Franciscan monastery. Before he was asked to leave, the prior had endured a nervous breakdown and several of the monks had broken their vows of obedience in actuality and their others' vows by desire. Very good. Dougal pleaded his powers as an exorcist in vain. Thereafter, for economy's sake, he gathered together the scrap ends of his profligate experience, for he was a frugal man at heart, and turned them into a lot of cockeyed books. I love that. I love that. And went far in the world he never married. Now, if you're talking about this is a woman who went to Africa yeah. and came back, um, had a nervous breakdown of her own, yeah. pleaded powers of exorcism. Wrote a lot of cockeyed Gathered books. together the scrap ends of his profligate experience for he's a frugal man at heart. This is a book that's written after several years of her living on basically bugger all. Yes. And turned them into a lot of cockeyed books. Clever, isn't it? Clever, clever, clever. Clever, clever. And Humphrey and Dixie get married in November. In November, so the whole thing happens between the spring, early summer, and November 1959. Or did it? Or did it? Or did any of it? Does it matter? One or two recalled there had been a fight between Humphrey and Trevor Lomas, but at all events, everyone remembered how a man had answered no at his wedding. So we were, we were saying on the way into the pub how um, much fun it's been taking this book out, and also how it's sustained a barrage of nonsense from us. Yeah, come through stronger, not only on scale, but significantly stronger than when we went in. It's a brilliant book. I said to you over breakfast, which seems like a long time ago now. It seems like we were different people back then, Tim, <laughs> before we went on this journey together. That I'd only just realised four books into this project of podcasting nonsense that um, the books aren't curiously specific. We are. <laughs> And the authors are curiously not. They don't give a shit. <laughs> Hello, darling. <laughs> They've changed our local tally into a bowling alley and things ain't what they used to be. There's Used to be, there used to be trains.